Hello, listeners. Welcome back to Quaid in Full. Before we kick off Season 2, a production note. We record episodes of the podcast far, far in advance. So far in advance, in fact, that if it sounds like we're oblivious to recent events, specifically the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, among others, and the subsequent response worldwide, it's because we were oblivious because they had not happened yet. Black lives may not have mattered to the bozos at the heart of the film we're about to talk about, but they matter to us at Quaid in Full. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the episode. Can you go any faster, Jesse? Going fast enough, Ed. Welcome back to Quaid and Full, the podcast with all the fox to give about actor Dennis Quaid. I'm your co-host, Sarah D. Bunting, and I am here with my shiny new co-host, Horse Whisper, Jeb Lund. Hello, Jeb. Hi. So, a little pod business before we get started on today's topic, which is 1980s long riders. First of all, yeah, I suckered Jeb Lund into doing this. Suckered is... It seems nefarious. I think in quarantine, I was happy to rise to the occasion and to have something to take me off of mortal terror. Yeah, I mean, as things that start with Q go, it's probably better to focus on Dennis Quaid than it is on the quarantine aspects of our lives. Absolutely. He's a cheery man. He's uh, upbeat. I think his oeuvre suggests somebody who sees some light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I mean, it could be an oncoming train. It just depends on the movie that we're talking about. Um, Anyway, I am excited that Jeb is doing this, and not just because it did motivate me to finally bring all of you, all four of you, you proud few, season two at last. So welcome. Season two of Quaid in Full is going to cover the early 80s, so you can look forward to the right stuff. You can, quote, look forward to Jaws in 3D and Caveman as well as one of those rightfully forgotten by history sex farces featuring Barbara Streisand as a free spirit who has boned both Dennis Quaid and his dad, Gene Hackman. I don't know either. We'll, we'll get to it in a few weeks. Also, we are aware that Quaid has a new podcast network called Audio Up, whatever. And his uh, first podcast is called The Denissance. I have not listened to this fine piece of audio product yet, but I can tell you that as of this recording, the most recent episode features guest Billy Bush on, quote, family, trauma, recovery, and Hollywood jail. So this shit's going to be a fucking trial is what I'm trying to say, but that's what we do here, I reckon. Um, It sounds exactly like a parody podcast that would take place only within the It's Always Sunny universe. Yeah. I mean, again, I haven't heard it yet. I will note that if he is expanding on his doing a heck of a job there, Trumpy comments from a few weeks ago, I may have to quit this podcast because, ew. But enough about the Denissance. Let's get started on today's topic, 1980s Western The Long Riders. Start the reactor. All right, here's a plot summary. But first, I think, Jeb, you had a uh, content warning for the listeners. Right, yeah. I These started as observations as I was watching it, but then I thought, well, you know, actually, if I were going into this blind, I think I maybe would like these warnings. So <laughs> uh, just, a, just a quick rundown here. One, 
there's a lot of retrograde politics from lost cause Confederate nostalgia and kind of late 70s, early 80s Southern cultural rehabilitation that on the face of it may seem depoliticized. And for a lot of people, it definitely was. But for a lot of other people, it is almost certainly a little reactionary dog whistling against the 60s counterculture and basically every element of non-white culture that it empowered. So like think of it on the white grievance tone scale somewhere much farther away from like Death Wish and Dirty Harry and much closer to like one of those historical songs by the band. <laughs> Got it. Very evocative. Yeah. So number two, a lot of raw, low quality auteur attempt misogyny that mostly achieves being obvious about misogyny and not a lot else because it doesn't really wrestle with what the dehumanizing thing means. It just gives itself credit for being real. Yep. Accurate. There is some ableist language, uh, mainly about like mental acuity. That's, I mean, it's no less hurtful for being this way, but it's also fairly antiquarian. So I don't know how traumatizing it will be because it is sort of like the dehumanizing slur equivalent of watching somebody box with their fists at a perpendicular angle to their forearms. <laughs> okay. And then the last one, and this one is probably the most traumatizing, is there are some what appears to be like a somersaulting horse and then multiple horses running through glass in bizarre slow-mo set to slow down effects of what I imagine are horses winning in torment. So yeah, that was my, well, it was tied for my most triggering thing with James Remar playing a 1.5 dimensional Character who is referred to by other characters as the half-breed. Mm, yeah. So, yeah. Lots of cheery Native American imagery there, including a knife fight that seems to have been ported over from a Ronin Saturday afternoon movie, but we'll get to it. Here is a plot summary of The Long Riders from TV Guide's glowing review. Quote, the Long Riders is a superb, nitty-gritty retelling of the story of the James Younger Gang, the most notorious American bandits of the 19th century. In a unique bit of casting, the Younger, James, Miller, and Ford brothers, that is, of course, the coward Robert Ford et al., and I, every single fucking time I almost say the coward Richard Ford, that is a completely different, completely different movie. Ford brothers are played by actual brothers Carradine, Keach, Quaid, and Guest. So, yeah. I mean, it is it is kind of this pretty broad, not that deep, last days of the American West overview. The director is Walter Hill, who directed, among other things, The Warriors. It's a gimmick that is diverting, but like it's almost the only diverting thing about about the film in my opinion how did you feel about the casting i thought for the most part that like you say it's provocative and it's an interesting gimmick and i think it would have been fine if they had better material i think everybody with the exception of the caradines is really trying whereas the caradines are kind of i guess david especially is just sort of like well i i showed up that's enough right yeah and i mean he's his acting is not inauthentic, it's just authentic for him. So it's like, well, that's how he would react in this situation, fine. But like, that's not really very uh, transporting. But like, Randy Quaid's given it his all. It's weird to see Christopher Guest in 
a sincere dramatic role. And I know that I know that like the Hollywood marketplace probably priced him out of doing these things. But the first thing I thought was like, you know, it's a shame that we didn't get to see more of him as this. But yeah, I mean, like the guys who are taking the center stage, uh, James Keach, who is our our, uh, Jesse James is he has a sort of shield shaped head and it's about as expressive as Cobra Commander's mask for most of it. And then about half of it is hidden behind this caramel toffee, almost fake beard that was like really engrossingly bad. So it, (laughs) because your, your leads, your, you got your Carradines and then you got your, your Jesse James are kind of inert. I think it, you know, it just sort of sabotages what would have been an interesting casting. That was a strange choice to make that keech jesse james Mm -hmm. because stacy whatever else you think about him i don't think much either way but it's like well here's the guy who i know best as the motorcycle cop from national lampoon and then there's stacy keech like i i don't know like even just physically stacy looks more jesse jamesy I guess he looked too old or too fat, tall. I don't, I don't know what the issue. It almost feels like maybe they deliberately stunt casted it. Like, I don't know what level they were at their respective careers at this point. I mean, obviously, Stacey Keach is the memorable one since then. Yeah. Who did better. So I don't know if, if his brother was actually a more bankable person, and that's why I did it. But I almost feel like they were sitting there going, like, well, what, what will really surprise people? Like, let's... Let's cross our typecasting because all we really see of Stacy Keach is one exposition dump between him yeah. and his woman as they're riding a, a stagecoach or like a wagon. Yeah. And then the next is another, it's not expository dump, it's, it's like an emotional dump of her and him in bed where it's, you know, it's almost like the, you didn't think they could be vulnerable, but they are moment. And it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't yeah. really work. Evidently, I watched this on Amazon Prime, and we will link to that in the show notes, among other things. You can read the contemporary reviews that I'm about to cite, and you can click on the link and watch the movie if you're an Amazon Prime member. One of the trivia things in the little x-ray function on Amazon Prime Video let me know that uh, the filmmakers did try to get Los Bridges for this, Jeff Mm -hmm. and Bo, and I... Once I knew that, I couldn't stop substituting them into various brother sets instead. But I don't think that would have worked any better for the James brothers, at least. Maybe it would have. Like, I think Bo could have done the, well, you know, I have a a woman and I am sensitive and care about her much better. But they wouldn't have been cast because the Keeches co-wrote and produced this. And so... I think the only way that you would have gotten the bridges in there would be booting out the Quades, and there's not enough for yeah. the Quades to really do. Or booting out the guests. And actually, yeah. I think the guests would have made, now that I'm thinking about it, more effective James Brothers. But it, yeah. thank you for reminding me that the Keeches produced this, because that answers my question as to why this sort of um, Aryan dude who is not expressive was was cast in this let us read from a couple of contemporary reviews and see where we come down on the spectrum uh here's one from variety quote director walter hill resolutely refuses to investigate the psychology or motivations of his characters explaining away men's life of banditry as a habit 
acquired in the wake of the Civil War. What's ultimately missing is a definable point of view, which would tie together the myriad events on display and fill in the blanks which Hill has imposed on the action by sapping it of emotional or historical meaning. End quote. That's pretty much where I am with it when I got to the line about missing a definable point of view. Mm-hmm. That's where I really felt uh, seen by this variety <laughs> author unnamed in the review I found online. Yeah, this wasn't like an active negative to watch. I wasn't like squirming around while I was watching this, but I also wasn't able to stick my full attention for long stretches of it, particularly when they're like talking to their women's. I'm not buying this. I don't care about it. Like there needed to be a more innovative, maybe Malicky approach to this right. material. Otherwise, it's just kind of a oral report <laughs> for your eighth grade 19th century history unit. Yeah. I mean, it, it gives itself credit for having negative characteristics to its characters and negative characteristics to America's past. Like, well, that's enough mm-hmm. complexity, right? I, I don't know if I'm stepping on your toes on going on the behind the scenes and production stuff, but one of the things that made me feel very validated in my opinion was reading that at one point this was supposed to be a miniseries. Right. And while it wasn't going to be probably like a 10-parter like the way we do them now in peak <laughs> TV, right? There is Thank still, you can, kind of, you can kind of see structurally where it feels like the original script was peeking through because you meet these guys and then you have this moment with their women that temporizes them in some way and adds these dimensions. And you can almost kind of see the point at which in the early episodes, everyone would have had the the step back from the plot and let's do 20 minutes of flashback to explain how this person became came to find themselves here and what dimensions they had. And then because it got condensed into a regular movie, it just winds up being these sort of feints like, well, you know, he's different, right? Okay. Yeah. And this miniseries would have been in the sort of North and South molds and would have been unbearable to watch today <laughs> when we have choices. <laughs> so I'm glad that they confined themselves to a hundred minutes, but I, I did kind of feel all the minutes. Yeah, and going back and looking at what gets singled out for praise, a lot of it seems to be fundamentally technical. Like they're pulling Mm -hmm. off these heist scenes, they're doing realistic violence, they're praising Walter Hill for his ability to choreograph these violent uh, set pieces. And that stuff is never going to age well, because at that point, really all you're praising the movie is, is for its technology. You're like, okay, well, that's pretty good, but... I can also think, well, The Untouchables came out eight years later and it did all of this at a higher level. So we're done. And then now we've got, and then 12 years after that, you get The Matrix. So why am I watching? And it's deeply unfair to it, but since that seems to be like where this really broke ground, you know, I gotta gotta rely on like, well, I've seen it. Not to mention that on a technical level, like you can see some seams and joints. This is also pointed out in Amazon's X-ray trivia section, but... I had already noticed it before I read, like the various, you know, goofs and continuity errors and visible squibs, the visible, um, like someone gets clotheslined by a tree branch at some point, I think, Jesse James, and you can absolutely see the rope that's like tied around his midsection to yank him back off the horse for the stunt. 
you can see it running up his back in a in the run up to that like it's because you go with slow-mo you have nowhere to hide and even in a muddy print you can see some ends that were not woven in which whatever like i don't require everything to be perfect but if this movie's selling point is the technical achievement of the direction i could let that shit go if this were more of a meditation on the misguided hero worship of guys like jesse james and cole younger but Mm -hmm. it isn't i don't think it knows what it is like that variety review said however tv guides contemporary review thinks quite well of it here's a snippet of that quote the long riders is one of the last great westerns made in america directed tautly by walter hill from an excellent well-researched script the cinematography by Rick Waite is magnificent, the period is beautifully captured, and Rye Cooter's outstanding score nicely incorporates folk music of the era, end quote. Tautly, okay. Excellent and well-researched? Mm. Uh, maybe. I'm not in a position to say. The period is beautifully captured by putting every single member of the aggregate gang in basically the duster version of that barn coat that Jack McCoy wears on Law and Order. So, <laughs> no. And Ry Cooter, the score is fine, but it's something that I have been noticing lately. And once, once I notice it, I can't unnotice it and sort of see it everywhere and be preoccupied with it. Namely, any evocation of this period whether it's ken burns is the west whether it's this whether it's uh, i think it's an unforgiven somewhere they're going to get the girl i left behind me in there mm. somewhere it's like it's a fine song it played custer to his death but i'm not sure how that became the shorthand it's right. interesting it's like they all whatever you had before Google searches, like they all went to the library and were like, what songs were popular in 1872? That's actually kind of what I was going to say about the, you know, well-researched. I mean, the, the, the metric for that in 1981 was you'd go around the newsroom and ask if anybody knew anything about Jesse James. (laughs) And then hopefully there was one person on staff who was a weird autodidact about it. But yeah, like unless (laughs) you could go and spend some time at the library and chance upon reading the right book, it was very easy to have no idea what you were talking about, about this sort of thing. So it could be wildly inaccurate, but because your only exposure to reading on the era like your historiography happened to be that you picked up like, you know, just the meathead version of it. You know, you would go away with a completely, a completely misgiven sense of what was actually happening. And I kind of feel like, well, you know, we know a sound guy. You're like, do you know anything? It's like 19th century. And oh, that one. Great. And look, Ry Cooter is great. Yeah. Like he is a great addition to the culture. But I feel like incorporating folk music of this era, like giving him credit for that in this case is like, eh, I don't know. And this is kind of my review overall. It's like, I'm not angry at Walter Hill. I don't need to fight him. (laughs) Having seen this movie, that's not something that I can always say. But there is so much to say about our collective consciousness's concept of the closing of the American West and outlaws like this. 
and what it says about um, Honky is feeling disenfranchised right. after the War of Northern Aggression and the failures of Manifest Destiny. Like, there is a lot to say that A, I am, that's so far above my pay grade, I can't even see it from here. And B, we weren't there as a culture in 1980. And that's fine. But ergo, there's like no point to watching this, in my opinion. Like, I'm, again, it's not terrible and I didn't hate it. It's just, there's no reason for it for me. Yeah, I think the problem is that it's mostly an update of what we already know. So what you have going for it then is just whatever happens to be contemporary and state of the art, which is action sequences. But those are going to age the poorest. So the only thing really left that makes it singular is the stunt casting. And then it hangs over it like to me, like just like an alien spaceship in, you know, like an action movie just coming and casting a shadow across like the nation. But the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford is, I think, an extraordinary movie. And I have no idea why people like as a rule didn't just decide that it was amazing. But every part of this movie made me think like, why am I not watching that? Because exact same jokes aside about theater franchises having to put the ass (laughs) Of Jesse James by the coward R. Ford on the marquee because they couldn't fit the whole thing. I actually wrote about this on Tomato Nation and the commenters went nuts. It was like, by the coward Lita Ford. Like, it was really a, it was really a moment we all had together. But the film itself I thought was fantastic. And yeah. I think everybody got hung up on the bollard of jokes about how long the title was and how it wouldn't fit on theater marquees and didn't actually think about what the movie was doing and having them feel. So Mm. I think it's just you and me who actually were like, hey, that movie was great. Yeah, I I actually watched that on my old DVD player where it would bring up the name of the thing you were watching. So the entire like three hours and 20 minutes or whatever that I was watching it, my DVD player just said the ass (laughs) and nothing else. And I was watching it and like thinking, oh, well, this is going to be a turkey in the same way that you're like, well, this is like the Western version of Waterworld or something. So I went in with like the most diminished expectations. And by the end of it, I was like, I have to just not watch that again for like five years, because if I do, I'm going to ruin it. And that was great. Have you watched it again? Uh, no, but it's on something on streaming, and I, I finally put it in the playlist. And and watching this is going to be the the impetus for going back and finally rewatching it. Agree. I am going to try to do that this afternoon when we're done recording. For right now, I am going to rate on a scale of one to ten this film, quaidiness aside, on its own merits. Um, again, not offended. Never need to interact with it or its stuntiness ever again three and a half yeah i'm i'm about there i'm about at a three the the virtues that it had when it was a contemporary product have worn away and all you see are kind of the seams and and the patchwork you know even as a snapshot of all these people at this weird part of their career where they could have gone anywhere like where randy quaid could have been not a nutcase and where Christopher Guest could have maybe had a, a a role as playing like the you know the snidely whiplash in in every movie. I mean, even then, like even that novelty, I'm just like, nah, you know. Nah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Robert Carradine as the 
what is he, the young, youngest, younger? Yeah. He has some nice moments and it took me a minute. Like I always try to figure out before looking it up, like, wait, why is my pattern recognition being thrown off by this person? I did manage to figure out that it's, you know, Revenge of the Nerds guy. But he's also forced to make the subtext that we're supposed to feel sorry for them because they were traumatized by being Confederates text in clip two. You could say we was drove to it. Oh? How's that? If it weren't for the war, we might have been something else. (laughs) Uh, You were a little too young to have fought in the war. That's true. But my brothers weren't. And we all go one direction together. There's kind of a lot in that line about the kind of Southerner who is willing to draft on previous generations' agita about Mm -hmm. the Civil War. But that's not where this movie wants to be. It plays around with that, with that exculpatory, I didn't do it, the North made me do it. Yeah, yeah. That was very much like as a, a kind of backlash to the revisionism of the 50s and 60s academically and the social revisionism of the 60s and 70s. If we're talking about this as a document, it is definitely a snapshot of like, as I said at the top, this kind of like white lash politics of like, at long last, will nobody have the courage to say it? We're blameless. Yeah. And just that like running under it in part because it's like just a historical trash but also because it misserves characters that the the only thing these people can do is run away from decisions that they had to opt into almost no part of like what this guy is being traumatized by or what his brothers are being traumatized by was anything other than optional for them so when you're giving me the we were forced into this you know without reckoning with the fact that at any point you could have just gotten on a horse and ridden north and said fuck it i don't have any sympathy for you both historically and dramaturgically (laughs) exactly now i'm gonna revise my rating down to a three because i am a little annoyed now that there was this much potential to really say something and exactly zero opportunities were taken to say anything except jesse james he was a cool dude like hmm yeah. If you want like the complexity of this and the emotion of this issue, you could just listen to a band song. Yeah. Or not. I mean yeah. it's shorter at least. <laughs> All right. Moving on to Quaid Qua Quaid. Dennis Quaid's character, Ed, is it basically ejected from the gang and movie quite early on because he had an itchy trigger finger during the opening bank robbery. It did seem kind of like everybody else in the joint was on the brink of shooting because they were nervous also, and he's just the one who happened to do it. I happened to capture, I got a screen grab of um, him flinching away from the pop cap that they put put in his his, uh, gun, Mm -hmm. and then the like sparks that they added in post. It's pretty funny. You can see all of those on our Twitter account. That's Quaid in full pot. So I will try to put that as our like Twitter banner this week. But uh, yeah, he maybe it's because the last thing that I covered on this podcast was breaking away, but he has a twangier, but still very Mike energy in this role. He's just kind of bratty, but 
doesn't have the courage of his convictions in that regard. Here he is getting decayed by his own brother on both page and in life in clip three. You gonna take that off him? I've seen what you've done. You may be family and everything, but I ain't siding with you. You're on your own. <laughs> I guess we didn't really need to hear from uh, Clover the horse, but... <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> she, she worked hard. She prepared. That's her moment. Uh, I mean, he's not bad, but he's not all that good in this either. It's a thankless role, too. How did you feel about how good he was in the his sort of limited? He's like the on screen the least of any of the brothers in play here. He just seems so miscast tonally, or I mean, not necessarily miscast for. I mean, he could play the role, but you would have to write the role differently. I guess is what, yeah. I, what I mean. It, also, it's funny. Like I was going back and listening to the first season, and Breaking Away was my Quaid entree as well. Uh, my mom loved that movie, and, uh-huh. and it was one of the few, like, when, you know, we got a VCR, we started stealing, you know, like, <laughs> copying stuff from the video store. It was one of the first <laughs> things I got copied. But um, at times, like, his pitch is almost like a uh, a Jimmy Stewart. Was, well, well, no, 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 come on, now, you know, you're like, <laughs> no, that's not you. You know, you gotta, you've got to be sort of smart-alecky. And so it it comes out a little bit with like that Quaid sass, but then it's like riven by doubt. And then he's sort of, he's sort of emasculated by his choice, but he's also proud of it. And you're like, uh, you know, I, I just, I don't know. I wrote out like all my problems with it, but, uh, but yeah, like that's. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. Like, I think that there is a certain Quaid essence they hadn't figured out, like the culture and casting directors had not figured out who Dennis Quaid characters usually are. So he's just like wandering across 17 different lanes at this point in his career. Like they still hadn't quite figured it out. And even, even in breaking away, that's sine qua non Quaid, but I don't think it's ne plus ultra Quaid. I love the fact that you you use Latin there because I have some Latin for you. Oh, I, I agree with you. So just what I wrote down. All right. So, you know, as I was trying to think like, all right, we're, we're Quaid qua Quaid here. You know, you would think that this would be peak Quaid because this is a boyish wannabe hooligan who can't really be a hooligan. Yeah. Because impish scofflaw is like Quaid brand. Yeah. But this role also demands that the impish scofflaw start the movie by creating a massacre of innocent people. Yeah. Which automatically kind of takes you away from like, oh, isn't he adorable? But then never really reckons with it on a deep level. So it just sort of like mars the character as he's otherwise presented. And then because you have this movie casting Quaid as Quaid wrestling with whether it's right for him to be Quaid and watch it, you know, like you're watching it and and you're watching sort of Quaid turn in on itself, which in Latin would be incurvatus in Quaid. (laughs) Quo Quaidus? But anyway, it's so it's like an S it's an exercise in like Quaid denial, you know, and like you can't do that. It's it's as inexpressible as a vacuum without the presence of God. You can't you can't have that. Well, and (laughs) without the presence in the, you know, in the presence of Quaid before this congregation in the world. um, (laughs) 
The other thing about the uh, stereotypical or classically quady role is that he's not ineffectual and he's not ambivalent and there's no ambiguity. Like it's not, there's no ish in a quade role. Mm-hmm. Like there's, you know, impish scofflaw or um, plays by his own rules. Wink. Like, Mel Gibson, but without the, you know, pre-Vatican II craziness right. and the racism. Well, maybe not without the racism. We don't know the guy. We haven't listened to the Denisons. But this sort of um, weenie type is really not what you cast either Quaid for. Like, there's a lot of different kinds of shitty person that Quaids can be but not this particular kind. Um, Here is the movie judging him. And then basically he gets a divorce while you're watching. It's, it's a moment and it happens because he's the only guy at this funeral without a gun. So when his wife is like, you know what? I can get out of this and I'm gonna, here's clip four. I ain't got no quarrel with them Pinkertons. I'm sorry about what happened to Archie, but uh, since you boys kicked me out, you can just go ahead and fight your own fights. Is that how you feel about it, Beth? No, it ain't. Come on, Beth. I've had enough talking with this fella here. You go your own way. Now, you hold it, woman. You gotta learn to mind me. Ed. Start walking. Is that what you want, Beth? And then to hell with you. Hell with both of you. Leaving aside that the um, actor playing Beth, like her choices are really weird. She's acting like she's in high school and she's been forced up to this point to carpool with someone who's several social stations beneath her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not exactly the right choice, but this um, ineffectual, like cuckolded Quaid is, is not it. Yeah, you can't emasculate Quaid. It's just no. not, it's not his brand. This scene, I think, is, is illustrative of the, the miniseries problem in this, because this could be, I think, you know, an evocative exploration of the character in a larger context where you spent more time with him. But as it is, you just have like an itchy trigger finger, panicky guy who doesn't quite settle down and then loses his wife at a funeral. And, and, and like violates the hobo code. I don't know. You know, when you read for a part, and you don't necessarily see a whole movie, you know, you just see the scenes that you're in, but I can't imagine getting these and not thinking like, I have no idea what the fuck is happening in this thing because all his scenes are, seem like such discreet events. Yeah. And it's like, why is he even back? Kick him out of the gang and don't like, they run into him at a dance. And then that scene, I also noted as like, we get it. You taught all the background actors how to do the real cut. <laughs> maybe i did actually hate this movie (laughs) um but yeah it's just like like who is this 
for? Is this to underline whose side we're supposed to be on against the evil Pinkertons? Like, the fact is that in life and history, 98% of everyone is complicit. So leave it out. Also, what is with the 80s haircuts on the Carradine in this scene? Come on, man. man. Keith Carradine looks like... I, I have no idea what he's doing, like, or what his his wardrobe person was doing. Like, when Tom Petty looks like that, it's because Tom Petty's doing a bit. Tom Petty he's... does actually look exactly like that. Well, not right now. Man. Yeah. Rested power. But, like, he looks like Tom Petty, Leif Garrett, and um, Steve Buscemi all got thrown into, into a white's load with one red sock. Like, yeah. what? <laughs> that... That is a disastrous comparison, but I'm leaving it in. Um, yeah, like <laughs> this movie, it's just so, I'm not mad, but I'm really disappointed. And as far as quaintiness, he's not, you know, it's not like I never promised you a rose garden where he has no lines and is in it for literally nine seconds, but he's really barely in this, especially given the gimmick. And yeah. he's miscast, like he does okay. He's like a four, but the amount of him is like a two, and the quaidiness of him is like a one. So I guess that leaves me at like a two and a half of quaid qua quaid. Yeah, I was there three, something like that. Yep. All right, folks. Well, that's the Long Riders. Uh, we did it. Now you don't have to. But I am going to recommend that y'all watch The Assassination of Jesse James by the Coward, not Richard. Robert Ford, because that's what we're going to use the time doing, I think. Yeah. All right, Jeb, thanks for joining the team. I yeah. hope that you'll stick around, even though this was kind of a kind of a fart of, a, of an hour and a half. So There's no way I'm punching out before the finest Dennis Quaid movie, DOA. Oh. <laughs> Let's hope we're not by that time. Where I forget where that even is. Season four? Hang in there with us, folks. We are going to get through his entire CV if it kills us. And Together. it might. Yeah. <laughs> Next time on Quaid in Full, it's Meatballs meets the Nanny in 1980s Gorp. Jokes write themselves. Not that you'd know it from the Gorp screenplay. In the meantime, you can check out the show notes and follow the podcast on Twitter at Quaid in Full Pod to let us know how you would have rated the movie or Quaid's shit stash in the movie. Wondering when your favorite Quaid joint is getting covered or want to advertise on a specific film or TV show? DMs are open. Quaid in Full is hosted and edited by Sarah D. Bunting. That's me. And Jeb Lund. That's him. Don't subscribe yet? To hell with both of you. Just kidding. You can go wherever you get your podcasts and sign up and rate and review Quaid in Full so other people can find it. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Oh, you're a real adult, aren't you?